0: The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. Listen now to the word of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile. And concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, and give success to your servant today. And grant me mercy in, my, in the sight of this man. Now I was cut to the king. The word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Welcome, everyone. It's good to see you all. Please pray with me. Lord, we come to you once again in this time of anxiety, fear, unrest, uncertainty, and we look to you for hope, for peace, for strength. Now, God, as we listen to your word and for your word, empower us to obey that as the body of Christ, we may shine your light in this world and bring your peace and your glory to all. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. This is now the sixth sermon in a series of sermons I've been preaching on abiding in Christ. Jesus calls us to abide in him, and we abide in him and in his word. And as we do that, he promises that we will experience the bearing of fruit of answered prayers, which will in turn glorify God and bring us the fullness of joy. I wanna be clear that abiding in Christ is not some trick to get more joy, nor some unpleasant discipline or hard punishment that you have to endure to earn joy. As I've quoted before from John H. Coe, the director of the Institute for Spiritual Formation at the Talbot School of Theology, Spiritual disciplines do not transform. They only become relational opportunities to open the heart to the spirit who transforms. Spiritual disciplines are relational opportunities to open the heart to the spirit who transforms. Abiding in Christ through Bible memorization and meditation and prayer and other disciplines are not an end to themselves. They provide only the relational opportunities with God to open the heart to the Spirit of God. What Christians have discovered over the years is that abiding in Christ himself is joyful, that he is joy, the fullness of joy. We've seen that over the last uh, month or so, that the two primary and practical ways of abiding in Christ are to abide in his word and in prayer. This morning, I want to continue our consideration of prayer as we take a look at the prayer of Nehemiah in light of our recent and tumultuous events. A little background first. The story of Nehemiah is the last piece of history in the Old Testament. It's a time when the nation of Israel has long been defeated and scattered, and the Persians are now the dominant power in the world. Nehemiah is one of many Jews living in exile in the city of Susa, an important city, the citadel, which served as a winter palace for the Persian kings. We don't know how long Nehemiah has been living in an exile as an immigrant, but he's done well. He's succeeded. He's the cupbearer to the king. the cupbearer, to the king. That may sound like a kind of minimum wage service industry job, like being a waiter or a bartender, but it was actually a very important and influential, high-ranking government position. He was part sommelier, choosing the wines for the king to drink, part bodyguard, tasting the wine to make sure it was not poisoned, part companion, hanging out, listening, and talking with the king, park counselor, one who is trusted to give advice when needed. Aside from the possibility of drinking poisoned wine, Nehemiah has a good life. It's possible that he could have lived out his life in peaceful ease, but it so happens that he hears news of what's going on in Jerusalem far away. I imagine It's like when some of you hear news about Korea, or Brazil, or Nigeria, or some other place your family is from. And his brother tells him, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken, broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. It sounds terrible, but this is actually old news. The remnant had been in trouble and chain for decades. The wall had been broken down for some time. The gates on fire was nothing new. Nehemiah could easily have ignored the news. Same old, same old. He could have taken his brother out for a nice lunch and then go back to his old and relatively comfortable life. But he didn't. It occurred to me that many of us are in a similar position today. Many of us live in the safe bubbles of the suburbs. Many of us live in the relative comfort of our homes despite COVID-19. Whether you were born here or recent immigrants, many of you have succeeded. And it may be tempting to turn your eyes away from the cities that are burning, from the people, who are in great trouble. But just as Nehemiah did not ignore the situation, we too must not turn away. Sadly, the murder of George Floyd is nothing new. It has only once again, exposed the ugly truth about racism, which the country and the church have never adequately addressed. In other times, we might have more easily ignored even this latest atrocity. But because of COVID-19, we no longer have the convenient cover of distractions, of spores, and entertainment to move us onto the next new thing. And so we have an unprecedented opportunity to really focus on what's going on, to move beyond banal platitudes, political correctness, virtue signaling, and performative activism. We need not let the looting and the violent riots, which frankly are terrible, distract us from the fundamental issues at hand. I believe there is much you can do, much that we can do together. I believe there are a number of faithful and loving responses for Christians and churches right now. And in Nehemiah, I see one model of what an appropriate Christian response to tragedy and crisis might look like or begin to look like. In verse 4, it says As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Upon hearing the terrible news about the people, And about the city Nehemiah did three things first he sat down he sat down in times of crisis when emotions are high there is an understandable desire to rush into action to do something many of you may be rightly agitated right now by what's been happening in the country and want to do something something needs to be done And Nehemiah knows that too. And he will do something. He will eventually go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls using Persian resources. But first, first, he sat down. Instead of rushing into action, he took a time out. He slowed down. It's not always possible to wait, especially in an emergency situation. But I believe that nearly every crisis nearly every trouble you will face will only be aided if you sit down and slow down first. I know that when I'm confronted with an insult or when someone misunderstands me or someone does something that I don't like or approve of, my first reaction is to want to respond right away in anger and from my hurt. But if I write back a quick email or say something right away, I know that it will usually do far more harm than any good. I've learned now that whenever I write something in the heat of the moment, I should never send that off. I still write it, but I let it sit in my draft folder. I sit down. I wait. And I can tell you that letting those kinds of emails sit for a little bit has saved me untold troubles. In a world where everyone wants to comment as quickly as possible on social media, I would encourage you to slow down, to sit down and listen. Offer the common courtesy to those who are hurting, to those who are angry, to those whom you don't understand, to those with whom you disagree, an opportunity to speak. Listen, sitting down is not inaction or laziness or a denial of the problem. Remember when Jesus was trapped into judging a woman caught in adultery? The first thing he did was to stoop down. That action slowed everybody down, including Jesus, so that they all at least had the opportunity to think calmly and rationally. Lately, I've been hearing a lot about companies and organizations throughout the country sitting down or perhaps being compelled to sit down to listen to their employees before coming out with some sort of statement. We don't have to be naive to think that everyone has had a genuine change of heart, nor do we need to be overly cynical and think it's all being driven purely by the bottom line. Whatever the motive is, that many are beginning to sit down and listen is a good start. I've appreciated the fact this week that the former presidents of this country, for example, have all responded to the current crisis, but they all took their time. Former president even explicitly noted that he, quote, resisted the urge to speak out because this is not the time for us to lecture. It is time for us to listen sitting down is an opportunity to listen, to be better informed. And I've been encouraged that so many families and FGs have started the difficult conversations on race and racism. If you have not begun to do so already, I encourage you to sit down, to examine your own hearts, put yourself in the shoes of George Floyd and others, listen to your black friends and neighbors, Read up on racism and black history. Sit down and take some time to learn together. Secondly, after sitting down, Nehemiah wept and mourned for days. I've sometimes caught my wife in tears watching K-drama. She tries to hide it. And one of my kids admitted that he or she cries watching certain anime. I've also found myself over the years in tears, watching emotional commercials. It's easy to have our emotions manipulated and to feel so strongly for fictional TV characters. Yet we have a harder time feeling for real people in real trauma. Nehemiah heard some old news about some people in Jerusalem, strangers. It's likely he's never visited Jerusalem and met any of those folks, and yet he empathized with their sufferings. He may not have had any direct connection to them, but he still wept and mourned for days. In the story of Job, after Job has suffered the loss of his wealth, the loss of his children, and had been brought near to very death, his friends come to visit him. And the Bible says that when his three friends heard all this evil that had come upon Job, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come to him, to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. They wept with him. They sat with him. They suffered with him. They offered no solution or explanation. They simply sat with him and wept with him. They didn't talk at all. In fact, sitting and mourning with him were the best things they did for him and with him. It was far more helpful than their later misguided efforts at explaining his suffering. Jesus also responded the same way when his friend Lazarus died. In John 11, we read, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, See how he loved him. When Jesus saw others in sorrow and mourning, he was deeply moved. And then He joined in their weeping. Jesus knows better than any of us that death is not the end. He knows that there is resurrection and eternal life. But he still wept with those who are weeping. There is much to mourn about. And being a follower of Jesus Christ means that we care about what Jesus cares about and mourning about the things that Jesus mourns about. And Jesus grieves over every lost life. I know that you can't make yourself cry or to feel something, and some of you just have a really hard time crying at all. But as you sit and listen, I hope your heart will be moved so that you can join in the mourning. Most of us have the luxury of mourning only in solidarity with others because we have not had to personally endure some of the racism, the police brutality, the oppression, the suffering that others have. But you don't have to personally experience any of those things to mourn with or to empathize. So I would encourage you to position yourself with those who are hurting and mourning so that you can better empathize. This might mean that you march alongside with those in peaceful protests, write letters to your political leaders, donate to organizations supporting justice and racial equality, find ways to get more involved in your local communities. None of this is easy and it will make you uncomfortable and put you in awkward conversations. But that discomfort is a part of empathizing and sitting and mourning in the same space. Now, it may seem rather contradictory that I'm telling you to mourn in a sermon series about more joy. But Psalm 125 reminds us that sharing in sorrow leads or can lead to joy. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing sheaves with him. The joy of peace, of shalom, the well-being of the whole community can result from weeping and mourning together. And third, Nehemiah sat down, he wept and mourned, and he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's weeping was accompanied by fasting and praying. He was not merely overcome by sorrow. He was not swept up in hopelessness because in his weeping, he called out to God. There are times when grief is so intense that fasting almost automatically accompanies it. You've all probably experienced a time, a time of great anxiety and sorrow or fear when you had no appetite, when you simply could not or didn't want to eat. I think there is some of that here in Nehemiah. But this is also a very deliberate fast, a time of intentionally choosing to focus more intensely on God, of seeking a deeper relational opportunity. In the book of Esther, for example, when Mordecai and the Jews are threatened by genocide, everyone weeps and fasts and prays. Mordecai then reaches out to Esther, who similarly calls everyone to fast with her for three days as she prepared to appeal to the king at the risk of her own life. If you read through the rest of the book of Nehemiah, you will see that about a dozen times in the book, there is mention of his prayers to God. Prayer was a regular part of his life. He didn't offer a perfunctory prayer when he heard about the crisis and move on to the next thing. He wept and prayed and fasted over a period of four months, seeking counsel and making plans. This indicates the depth and the genuineness of his mourning. He really empathized. He really cared. I suppose it could be that Nehemiah was one of those people who cried more easily, but his deep prayer life tells me that a part of it must be that he was more fully abiding in the presence of God. And we see this reflected in the prayer that is given to us in verses five through 11. Now, obviously, because he's been praying for over a period of months, this is not the entire prayer. So it's probably just an example or perhaps a summary of the kinds of prayers that he offered up. But it's a good example for us because it models the acronym that many of you probably learned as children on how to pray. The acronym ACTS, A-C, T S. If you don't know where to begin your prayers, this is a good place to start. Begin with adoration. Verse 5. Nehemiah says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He calls upon God, the God of heaven, and reminds himself and God of His power and faithfulness. God is the one who keeps his promises. Knowing who God is and declaring who God is puts Nehemiah and us in the right frame of mind as we begin our prayers. Secondly, confession in verses six and seven. He prays, I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which, and notice the language that he uses here, which we have sinned against you, Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments. Notice that he fully identifies himself with his people. It's not their sins he prays about. Even though he is not personally responsible for what's going on in Jerusalem, even though he has not even been there, he includes himself along with his family in confession we acknowledge that we are all that we are all responsible for what's going on and for the sins and the brokenness of the world. Third, he moves on then to thanksgiving in verses 8 and 10. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying if you are unfaithful I will scatter you among the peoples but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and will bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. The thanksgiving in these verses are implicit. In his review of God's covenant and God's promises, he remembers what God has done and the promises that God has made and that they are God's covenant people. Such remembrance is a form of thanksgiving. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said when we celebrate communion, for example, we are remembering and giving thanks. Another word for communion is the Eucharist, which literally means thanksgiving in remembering We offer thanks. And then finally, S for supplication in verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, that is, the king. Notice the modesty as well as the specificity of his prayer. He's asking for mercy in the sight of the king. He's not looking to overthrow the Persian Empire and rescue the people of Israel single-handedly in some magical or miraculous way. He starts by seeking God's favor before the king because he knows that whatever mercy he might receive from the king will be a result of God's favor. Notice that he's not praying alone. He asks God to be attentive to the prayer of your servant, that is, Nehemiah, and the prayer of your servants. He's praying in community for God's favor and mercy. So I want to invite you all this week to model Nehemiah as you all abide in Christ. Sit down and listen. Mourn, weep, position yourself to empathize and pray and fast the 20th century historian Arnold Toynbee said this, apathy can be overcome by enthusiasm. And enthusiasm can only be aroused by two things. First, an idea which takes the imagination by storm. And second, a definite intelligible plan for carrying that idea into practice. Don't we, the people of God, have an idea that has taken our imagination by storm? Don't we have an idea of an intercultural, beloved community, the kingdom of God, where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither black nor white, where all experience the shalom of God, where we are all one in value and love in the body of Christ? It seems redundant or ridiculous that I actually have to say this as if this were something new or shocking. But to be clear, and so that there is no misunderstanding from silence, as followers of Jesus Christ, we must oppose, we must condemn in no uncertain terms, any and every form of racism. Racism is precisely the opposite of what God intends for humanity and the people of God. I hope your faith and your love of God in Jesus Christ fills you with enthusiasm for what is good and true and just, and that vision will lead you to plans for carrying that out in practice, whatever that may look like. As believers in Christ, as we sit down and listen, as we empathize in mourning together, as we pray and fast, as we praise God for who he is, as we confess our shared sins, as we offer thanksgiving to God for what he has done, for what he has promised, I believe God will speak to us and answer our supplications for his glory and for the fulfillment of our joy and lead us toward a higher righteousness and toward his kingdom. There is much work to be done. But as someone said, there are many things you can and should do after you pray, but there is nothing that you can or should do before you pray. So let's start sitting down, mourning, and praying with one another for our country and for the church. Let's pray. Lord, you are a God of righteousness and mercy and justice we confess we have failed our neediest brothers and sisters we ask for forgiveness and the compassion and power to do better we thank you for the invitation to abide in you and to abide in one another help us to find our true identity in you and in that joyful knowledge help us to sit and listen to weep and mourn and to continue to fast and pray for all your people. Now we pray together the prayer Jesus taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For that is the kingdom and the power and the glory for us. Amen.